to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. As always, thank you to Yola Tango for the intro music. This week, we have someone that I didn't know if we'd ever get on the show, so I'm excited to have Nick Anderson. If you're from Texas, you might be a fan of his book of cartoons about the state of Texas. I know several people that are from Texas that have this book, and they love it very much. Or you might have been a fan of his political cartoons that have been syndicated through a variety of newspapers on a, on a national level. So when I heard that Nick was coming to town, I was thrilled with the idea of getting him on. And this is out of my comfort zone. This is certainly out of his comfort zone, because this is why I wanted to do this podcast. It was just with Bill and I to talk about the restaurants of Major Domo. And then I realized, oh, I can just talk and learn myself from people that interest me. And I'm a fan of Nick's work. He started a new political cartoon site called Counterpoint. Nick won a Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning in 2005 while drawing for the Louisville Courier Journal. This is our second Pulitzer Prize winner on this podcast. Pretty cool. The first one was Jerry Saltz, the art critic for New York Magazine, which has probably been one of our most favorite podcasts, both for myself and from the listener's perspective. And now Nick, who is doing what I love about it is it's literally a Sisyphean like job to do something that is widely underappreciated. And we talk about a variety of things, including mental health and stuff like that. But we live in a world today where we don't have to go too deep about the political environment. And I think more than ever, uh, we need the courage of cartoonists or people on the creative world to express certain viewpoints. And what I like about Counterpoint is that it's giving me the left, the right, and the center. And one of the things I've always tried to aspire to be is to see different viewpoints that challenge me and I may not even agree with. And uh, it's something I'm still trying to understand. Like maybe the only way we can make this world and this country a better place, as crazy as it sounds, is to spend more time thinking about things that we would never think about. And it's great that he's been able to express this through his artwork and the fact that he's chosen this profession and uh, something that is, when I say a labor of love, man, like it has been a true labor of love. So Nick Anderson, the founder, editor of CounterPoint, check it out. And here you go. So welcome, Nick Anderson. Thank you, Political Dave. cartoonist. Uh-huh. Um, I don't even know where to begin or how to get this started, other than we have a mutual friend. Mm-hmm. Um, you are starting a new endeavor. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what that is? So CounterPoint is a, a, a completely different way of delivering editorial cartoons. What's been happening with editorial cartoons over the last few decades is newspapers are in decline and they're looking for things to cut. And so... They are, you know, they're cutting reporters, but they're cutting even more severely editorial cartoons, editorial cartoonists. Uh, there used to be about 180, 200 cartoonists when I first started this, and now there's something like 20, 25 full-time cartoonists. So it looks like this art is dying. Everyone, in fact, there have been several big firings. I was let go from the Houston Chronicle two years ago. So even the big newspapers are just deciding they don't need an editorial cartoonist and are using syndicated material, but syndication just doesn't pay the bills. It doesn't pay very well. Uh, so cartoonists are having to do other things to survive or just get into something else. So this is kind of an effort to decouple our fates from the newspaper business. And what was frustrating for me is that my engagement on the website was really high. Every time I talked to the online staff, they'd say, you're in the top five every day, and engagement is really high, meaning people are like not only looking at it, but they're like commenting on it, arguing about it, which is the kind of thing you want. So it was unexpected. And also, what kind of drives me crazy is our stuff goes very viral on social media a lot, uh, Facebook and Twitter. And a lot of times that is people or large pages will do a copy and paste. And so it goes crazy on Facebook, but you don't actually get any benefit from that. There's no no way to monetize that. So I wrote a column about it last year. Uh, there's a cartoonist named Rob Rogers who was fired from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette for doing anti-Trump cartoons. That they, were, they just told him, you're doing too many 
Trump cartoons, they were Trump fans, and he was very critical. So he went public, and it became a cause celeb, and um, many Hollywood stars were tweeting about it. I think Meryl Streep was one of them. So it and it made all the like CNN, New York Times, a lot of big publications wrote about it. So I wrote a column about it saying, if you're angry about this one firing, you really should be angry about the entire state of editorial cartooning because editorial cartoonists have been silenced for decades. It's just been done more quietly. And Vivek happened to see this column that was in CNN and he contacted me. Vivek is our funder and he, he, uh, he contacted me and said, Hey, let's, this sounds interesting. I can't believe you guys are having trouble. I see cartoons everywhere. Let's do something about it. And here we are. Um, and I, I want to get into your background and how you got there, but you mentioned that newspapers are on the decline. Mm-hmm. Not everyone, I guess. The Washington Post has had a resurgence. The mm-hmm. New York Times has had Banner Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems a lot of the smaller national publications are mm-hmm. are getting hit pretty hard. Um, and you said something else that the political cartoons have been in decline for decades. Can you talk about that? And before that, I guess. What's the history of political cartoons? So America has a great, uh, rich history of, of editorial cartooning. In fact, I'd, I'd say it's really thrived here. Thomas Nast is the most famous American editorial cartoonist. He is credited with bringing down um, uh, Boss Tweed in New York, uh, a corrupt politician and, and political, basically political gang. And uh, because back then, political cartoons were even more important and more powerful because people weren't as literate. So people may not read the entire article, but they could understand a cartoon. And they were very powerful around the turn of the 19th century. And so it, it really uh, ushered in a, uh, a great era of editorial cartooning, especially during the, uh, the Nixon era. Editorial cartoons became really, really um, important. Herb Block was, uh, Nixon famously complained about Herb Block. He said, I got to get rid of this. Herblock always drew him with a five o'clock shadow. He said, I got to get rid of this Herblock image. Um, he was famously quoted that way. And then I, th- I think over time, as newspapers kind of lost their influence, they just started to desperately try to find ways to cut. And they just decided to go with their core competency, which is writing. But they cut out one of the most popular and engaging parts of the newspaper. They still run them as syndicated content, but when you have a local cartoonist with their own voice and the readers know them, it's it's far more engaging. So what we do with CounterPoint is we have an equal number of liberal and conservative cartoonists. We publish on Tuesday and Thursdays right now. It's a newsletter. And what makes this different is it's original content. We're paying for original content. It's not syndicated material. You can't see them anywhere else first. And uh, we have three liberal, three conservatives in each issue right now. And I don't want to imply that it's always perfectly balanced because a conservative cartoonist might criticize Trump some days and a liberal might criticize Democrats. And I encourage that. I think it's a mistake to get into binary thinking and everything has to be broken down in a left and right. And I want people to think freely and be able to be free to express themselves. So each issue, we have a very hard-edged editorial cartoons and commentary. And it's different because some of the cartoons we publish, you wouldn't see in a... In why, why is that? Um, newspapers are pretty play it pretty safe um we had a cartoon a couple weeks ago the first cartoon was an extended middle finger that said and is labeled nra on it and then it had a little trump puppet on the top of the middle finger saying something really funny that's kind of kind of thing you would never see in your newspaper because people readers would get angry and the the editors would get afraid and they would just not publish the cartoon or if they made the mistake the mistake so to speak uh they might apologize in fact Another famous case was the New York Times had their international edition last spring published a cartoon that was widely regarded as anti-Semitic. International outrage about it. It wasn't even published in the local, or the the local, the uh, the national edition here, but it was in the international edition. And they ended up a couple months later firing their own editorial cartoonist who didn't draw the cartoon, but somehow he got fired. And everyone thought there was probably a connection between those two things. Um, so it seems like the solution for newspapers when they get controversy is to just get rid of the, one of the people that causes controversy. So you've been seeing this sort of intolerance towards variety of viewpoints for several years now. Yes. And we've reached a sort of this peak of uh, if you disagree with my opinion or if you're challenging it, 
I want to get rid of you. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that right now, and I, and I, I'm afraid that there's a there's a general intolerance for views that we disagree with. We're very polarized right now, and that's one thing I really like about Counterpoint. Even as a reader, is I see this sort of mashup of different styles and different voices. And every week, there's cartoons that I love, and there's cartoons that I can't stand. But I really enjoy reading it. It's very engaging. And even the ones I can't stand, there's still something about it that is that is very engaging to me. What it what is it from your point of view that you can't stand about something? Well, uh, if I very vehemently disagree with a perspective or think it's just wrongheaded or promoting a point of view that I think is based on uh, maybe even misinformation, that will really drive me crazy. And yet, I still find the content very engaging. Like it's just something I disagree with, and yet. Philosophically, I think the answer to speech that you don't agree with is more speech. And what do we do? Do you think that we're ever going to go back to a time where we're going to be more patient with differing viewpoints? Or is it going to just get worse? Uh, I, I hope so. It does seem to be that we're in a very segmented media environment right now. Uh, people tend to go to the media that reinforces their preconceived views. And th- that bothers us. So we're making you engage with, well, not making, you don't have to read the ones you don't like, but we're hoping that you engage with different perspectives. And um, part of our effort here is to do something different. First of all, to be honest about our biases. Every Everybody has a perspective. And we're just very honest about what ours is. Each individual cartoonist has their own political philosophy and their own biases. Editorial cartooning is opinion by its nature, but we're very upfront about that. So I think that people just want to know where you're coming from. And the response has been incredible. We're growing with, by 10,000 subscribers a week. We, as of a week ago, we had 60,000 and probably have 70,000 today. Um, it's just the, the reception has been overwhelming. Is this cyclical or do we, how do we get to a place where we can, as a country or just as individuals and in, little bubbles that we live in be open to other things because while we're talking about editorial cartoons and political commentary, I see this in all walks of life, whether it's the kind of food you like, the music you listen to, the people you hang out with, the Mm -hmm. skin color you are, so on and so forth. It just seems to me that with technology and social media that should be sort of democratizing and making us all a little bit more sort of free-flowing in our information and opinions, mm-hmm. it's actually creating more walls and yes, barriers. it's done the opposite of what we all expected. I do think it's cyclical. I hope it's cyclical. I hope we don't stay in this rut. Uh, because I mean, not only do I think it's, it's unhealthy, I think it's bad for democracy. If you're not going to engage with ideas that you don't agree with or even facts that you don't agree with, that's the most difficult thing for me is I think that there are just outright, there's outright misinformation out there that there's a market for. And so people just listen to what they think is the truth when in fact, you know, I tend to trust the mainstream media. A lot of people don't, but I, I as a member of it, even though I got kicked out of it, I watch the process. They do, they do fact checking. They are held accountable for it. And I think they generally do an, uh, an honest job. I think you can make the case that they they might have a perspective, but I think that they're really pretty good and deliberate with with their fact checking. But now I just feel like with all the stuff you see on social media, there's all these news sites that I've never even heard of that have no credibility, and yet to the average viewer, they have the same weight as the New York Times. You know, I, I grew up in a very religious household with a, a lot of hardcore Korean-American Presbyterians. And I could very easily see my life trajectory going very similar to a lot of my cousins and aunts and uncles, where it was this bubble of Christianity, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to stay within it, and nothing's going to change. The world is 4,000 years old, and so on and so forth. And by chance, I was able to not be in that bubble, and I was able to have my ideas sort of challenged and Mm -hmm. uh, it was very frustrating until I saw different perspectives. But how do you tell someone that they're wrong, right? Without telling them that they're wrong, they have to come to their own conclusion on their own volition. And I think that's the challenge I have is just sort of telling a cook how to do something better, right? I can tell them, but they're never going to do it unless they meaningfully want to do it on their own. And 
I see a lot of the similar patterns in trying to change someone's opinion. Like, how do you do that? I guess that's my fundamental question I have is, Mm -hmm. how do you change someone's opinion? Critical thinking. Everything you're describing is critical thinking. And one thing, I I grew up somewhat similarly. I grew up Catholic. I grew up, I went to uh, Catholic schools, but I went to a Jesuit high school, St. John's High School in Toledo, Ohio. And I'm grateful because they're, although they're they're definitely religious, they also teach you to think critically. And I would say that that was an important part of my formative years. And, uh, you know, people that come out of that school are, one of them is um, the governor of Arizona. He's a Republican governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey. He's a few years ahead of me. And I'm, he's to the right, I'm to the left, but it did seem to encourage critical thinking. And I think that's one thing that I think that CounterPoint can offer is you can't get through one issue of CounterPoint without a little bit of critical thinking. It's going to take you out of your comfort zone in an engaging and fun way, hopefully. You're going to see stuff you like. You're going to see stuff you agree with. You're going to see stuff that makes you laugh. And you're going to see stuff that makes you mad. And involuntarily, you, you're you going to think about why does that bother me? And it's, you start to think. So what it does is it, it starts to open your mind a little bit. And that's really what we want to do, either whether you're liberal or conservative, to get out of your comfort zone a little bit and at least engage in what the other side is saying. Even if you reject it, at least you're thinking about it. And critical thinking, I think, is what we're really lacking right now as a country and as a democracy is people sort of just have faith in their side. And it's safer to just continue believing what you believe rather than really thinking critically about your own side or about the other side. I want to table this real quickly because the, you're talking about critical thinking. And this is something I feel like we've talked about in this podcast, or I've talked to my own employees ad nauseum, but it's dawned on me. You're talking about something that people may not even know what the fuck it means. Mm-hmm. What is critical thinking? So I describe it as uh, quite, first of all, when you started to question what you were being spoon fed, that's faith. If you don't question what you're being spoon fed by a uh, authorities, whether it's a religious authority or a political authority, then you're not thinking critically. You're accepting what someone else is telling you. And if you do that, whether it's on faith or belief, you're being a sheep. And then that whoever's the authority, they have power and control over you. And when you start to question and say, well, why is it this way? And I see inconsistencies in your message. You're preaching this, but that seems inconsistent with the basic principles of what you tell me we should be about. That's critical thinking. When you start to question question authority, authority a little bit and find inconsistencies, hypocrisies, and maybe find your own voice and your own belief system, that's critical thinking. I found that critical thinking, when it's explained to someone, has sort of this scientific bent that loses people. Mm. They feel that it has to be this rational, logical, robotic thought. Well, mm. in a way, I think the the mechanisms are sort of there. Mm-hmm. But I think what gets lost, in my opinion, is critical thinking means empathy. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It is simultaneously thinking like a robot, logically speaking. Mm-hmm. But can you simultaneously think outside yourself? Mm-hmm. Think why that. someone might feel something. Mm-hmm. That's hard. Yeah. That's really hard to do. And one of the things that's helped me understand critical thinking a little bit better, because, I mean, I've been talking about this a lot with some of my friends, is I've had a hard time understanding modern art because I grew up thinking that if it wasn't, you know, Raphael or some Renaissance master, then it was sort of garbage, right? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how I thought about food growing up, that it had to be this Robichon, this perfect three Michelin star shit. Mm Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't that, it was garbage. Right. And then I realized, wow, that's just a very myopic way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And it sort of culminated in me understanding cubism. I think I do a little bit better, which is to me incredibly beautiful because it was like, oh, this is every perspective simultaneously. And it's challenging to people. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Picasso could do that. But if you look at earlier Picasso, you're like, holy shit, he he could do this when he was like five years old, painting like Raphael. Right. And him and George Brock to create this platform where it was something that's never been done before. But if you show someone a Cubist painting, because I've been this ignorant bro at looking at that, I know what it's like to be like, well, this is garbage. It's a bunch of fucking triangles and shit. It's not very talented at all. Yeah. I think it's that same kind of sort of allergic reaction to something as to why people don't want to critically think, because as you said, it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. 
why is it that we're so uncomfortable to outside perspectives that challenge our norm? Well, I just think it feels safer to think you already know the truth, to, to especially with religious faith. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not opposed to religion, but I, I'm troubled by it when it replaces critical thinking and when it can be used to control people. And when faith just becomes something where it replaces uh, your own persona, your own ability to to have your own voice. And I think, you know, we've seen over the centuries where religion was used for evil to you know, start wars and as pretext to do some pretty evil things. So I, I do think that while well-intended, um, keeping in your comfort zone can often lead to some pretty uncomfortable places. That's what I'm trying to wrestle with because well, this sounds crazy. How do you, I try to explain this to my cooks. You have to fight the urge to just be rational, to do the thing that's most sensible. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you're just going to be on one single track the rest of your life. Yeah, that is, that is so true. And you, if you're in one single track, you tend to get into a rut. And it's one of the reasons that I have, uh, one of the things I've struggled with with CounterPoint is, okay, we have 50-50 liberal and conservative, but there's been some discussion with among the cartoonists, well, we don't have a 50-50 split of cartoons every week because sometimes, you know, we have a, a Scott Stannis, who's a, one of our cartoonists, who's a lifelong Republican, Reagan Republican, never voted for a Democrat for president, but can't stand Trump. And that's a perfectly valid perspective. It's... um He's coming at this from a conservative point of view. He thinks Trump is a bad thing for the Republican Party, and he thinks it's Trumpism is not conservatism. And I don't want to squelch that thought or that expression, because for one thing, you can't evolve your own perspective if you're kept in a box. I call it like crossfire thinking. Remember that CNN show, Crossfire, Mm -hmm. which finally died? It broke everything down to binary thinking, left versus right. And I think even the hosts sometimes were forced to take positions that they didn't believe in. And it became dull and boring and didn't move our country forward at all in terms of the way the debate can evolve. And so I really am passionate that it should be, we should make an effort to have 50-50 voices and philosophies, but you can say, but I'm turning these people loose. They can say whatever they want. We've got Ted Rawl, who's got this really different style who's liberal, but is as hard on Democrats as he is on Republicans. He was very hard on Obama. So, and I really want to encourage that because as individual artists, they will be better and do their best work if they're expressing themselves in that a prescribed point of view. And the readers will benefit by seeing an evolving point of view and real, genuine, authentic thinking. How do you sort of determine balance then? Because counterpoint the definition of counterpoint would be sort of a quid pro quo, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. What's balance then? Do you see it as 50-50? Because that makes sense on paper. Right. But it's not. So yeah, this has been an internal discussion with our funder and our marketing group. And they have uh, thought we need to have balance in every issue. At least that's been a part of a discussion. And I have pushed back because of what I just described. And because I don't want to get into uh, scorekeeping, I want cartoonists to do what they think is right in any given week. So the way that I have uh, managed each issue is each issue has to have a 50-50 balance of philosophies. So we have, in fact, we have them color-coded. We have blue and red. Uh, Their names are in blue and red. It's just sort of a subtle way of suggesting who's on which side. So we'll have um, conservatives who are criticizing Trump for deficit spending. That's a conservative point of view. It's traditionally conservative to be fiscally conservative. And yet the modern Republican Party has gotten away from that. And it's intellectually honest for their own conservative voices to criticize them for that. So... Is that a liberal cartoon or a conservative cartoon if they're criticizing Republicans? I've argued that that's actually a conservative cartoon coming from the conservative side. It just happens to be criticizing a Republican. And that's where I think we we tend to get a little too simple in our thinking in that if you're criticizing a Republican or Trump, it's therefore a liberal cartoon. It doesn't have to be that way. And I also think, you know, I hasten to add that Trump is definitely not traditionally conservative. Trumpism is, is definitely a... Uh, a change from from traditional conservatism in that he's um, he's 
you know, pro-deficit spending and uh, in favor of trade wars and tariffs, which are definitely against what traditional Republicans have, have believed in. When you talk about the philosophy, and this is something I've really tried to understand myself, uh, balance, what balance is, is mm-hmm. and I've come up with this half-baked theory that is sort of like the string theory, and I can see it when I tell someone how to season something with salt. Mm-hmm. To cheat someone how to properly season something with salt, I tell them it should taste over-seasoned and under-seasoned simultaneously. Huh. And it's a paradox. Okay, yeah. And I think there's a lot of power in paradox. Yes. Um, and it's something I learned in college way back when in an advanced logic class. And we wrote about it in this Wired piece that just seemed really sort of self-righteously stupid. But I have been trying to find better ways to explain it to like a 10-year-old. When you taste something and it's properly, it's like you think about it and it's like, oh, that's over-seasoned. That's too much salt. And then you think about it some more, it's like, no, it needs more salt. That's, That's balance. Perfect, yeah. I can't tell someone, I guess on paper it makes sense, hey, you should reduce the salt by 30%. Right. Makes sense on paper, but life doesn't work that way. And so many times when I look at a situation, I wonder if you feel the same way. And I want to sort of refrain from getting in trouble by applying sort of scientific methods to something, but I try to define it by the extremes. So when you're doing something counterpoint, are you trying to find the furthest left sort of position on a, say Trump did something stupid, you want to find the furthest left position and the furthest right position simultaneously. So actually, no, because we have a stable of cartoonists. One thing I don't want to do is is get uh, just sort of a scattershot number of styles. I want readers to start to get to know the cartoonist and their voice. So I have what, I, what I've assembled to think to be as, uh, an assembly of diverse perspectives. We have there's not a lot of female cartoonists, uh, and there's it's like 98% males, but we have a female, we have um, different ages, different styles, and uh, really across the spectrum, um, from far left to far right, and then everything in between. We have 14 total, and we have some that are really pretty so close to the center that you don't know what they're going to draw from week to week. And I happen to think that's a good thing because that's a pretty good representation of where we are as a country. A lot of independents will be a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So, and, and that's represented in Counterpoint. I, like I said, I just am really reluctant to get into a scorekeeping where it's perfect balance every time. And I do like uh, some extremes in, in the voices. But again, if that particular cartoonist wants to do something more ordinary in a particular week, that's fine. Because I want them to, to be free to think for themselves and to say what they think is right in any given week. Otherwise, they're not going to do their best work. How frustrating is it to, when you were and other editorial cartoonists were working for newspapers on a national level, to have to sort of muzzle yourself? So, oh, that's a great question. And Vivek is our funder. And he, after about three months of publishing, he said, why are you all playing it so safe? why aren't you all taking chances? He asked me this, and, and I thought about it for a while. And I said, I think we're so gun-shy from years of working in the newspaper business and self-editing that we've kind of learned to drive within the guardrails and and not and not take chances and not do things that we think an editor was, is going to kill. Like you have your own self-editor. You know, It's like touching the hot stove. You're not going to keep touching the hot stove um, because you know it's just a waste of time. You're going to draw a cartoon that's going to get killed anyway. So why put the effort in? And so I kept going to the cartoonist saying, hey, take some chances. Stop playing it so safe. And I had to do it myself, too. And we really started to come alive in in early June. We went from kind of ordinary cartoons to really hitting our stride and finding our voices. And we were in early June, I think we had about 750 subscribers, and we're at 60,000, 70,000 today. So that is partly a result of really hitting our stride with content and good marketing from our marketing guys and getting in, in the viral or in our organic growth from just doing good work that you can't see anywhere else. Do you worry about your safety then? If you're going to go, like, I don't, there's no reason to go into sort of the historical sort of shitty things that have happened to editorial cartoonists, mm-hmm. right? But if you try to speak freely, people will try to retaliate. Yeah. Um, that's come up a little bit. So we, the only process we have, we don't have an editor. We have a process where if something feels like it might be outside the bounds of, you know, 
just completely, you know, maybe anti-Semitic or somebody, sometimes people draw something and it's unintentionally has an image in it that they might not realize is anti-Semitic or, or, uh, you know, anything that might feel outside the bounds. We, we discuss it as a group of cartoonists and we kind of take a vote and say that we feel comfortable with this. So that's the only process we have. We've not used it yet. I guess that's sort of the nuclear option. We have not used it yet, but we do have a process in place. We had a really interesting debate last week where we show each other sketches and one cartoonist had drawn uh, Netanyahu with an armband with a Jewish star on it. And another cartoonist said, Hey, look, that's going to distract from your message. Cause that looks like a Nazi armband that just has a, a Jewish star on it. So he ended up changing it. And that was just kind of a nice, you know, nobody told him to change it, but he decided on his own, he wanted to, he wanted to change it. So that's how the process works. Um, ironically, I had threats to my safety when I was working for a newspaper. Um, I had this guy that just couldn't stand me and he, <laughs> He was 70 years old, and he told me he was a black belt, and I, he, I, he was my worst nightmare, and he was going to beat me up. So, <laughs> um, that, that was pretty entertaining. But we had, I had some, uh, you know, we've all had threats to our safety. You tend to not take them seriously, but you can't help but in the back of your mind wonder if there's a crazy out there that's uh, coming after you. So even when we're when we're with newspapers, we still had the same issue. So far, it hasn't been a problem with Counterpoint because most of the, everyone that subscribes to it, you know, wants to see it, and they might complain about the balance, which is inevitable. But they ha- we haven't had any threats to our safeties that I'm aware of yet. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of the Day Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO. Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. If you're in the hospitality industry or in any business, you can really empathize and relate to Dylan's plight. Dylan switched to ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get a qualified candidate fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn barbecue and smoking by probably one of the greatest barbecue master of all time and Aaron Franklin. You can learn California cuisine by Alice Waters. You can learn French technique from Thomas Kellen, Gordon Ramsay. And with over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there's literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV. And each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. Masterclass is something I checked out because I love cultural things and I want to learn everything. And Masterclass has basically everyone you read about or you think is best in class. There's just so many different rabbit holes to go down and you're getting literally a masterclass from the best out there. And having that access is just priceless. So I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang. That's masterclass.com slash Chang for 15% off masterclass. And now, back to the show. Is editorial political cartoons, is that, does that exist outside, like in Asia, in Africa, is it this historically an American European thing or? It, it does. In fact, there's a, there's a, it's worse elsewhere. Um, I'm not as schooled about these things right now as I should be, but there's some jailed cartoonists around the, the world and dictatorial regimes of uh, Turkey, 
has a famous situation where they've they've jailed their cartoonist, and there's a couple of others where uh, there's an international award for cartoonists, courage in cartooning, for cartoonists who go take far greater chances than we do to their to their health and well being. So it's definitely a, an art elsewhere. England has a great history. Um, they have a lot of cartoons that Americans would be appalled by that shit jokes or toilet paper jokes or bathroom jokes uh, that would never put, get published in American newspapers. But they get published in British newspapers because they have a different set of standards. But they're more like counterpoint cartoons. They, they, uh, they take a lot of chances and, and they do great work. Um, New York Times, they don't really have political cartoons, do they? No. What, uh, <laughs> what is the reason for that? They think they're kind of too high and mighty for editorial cartoons, I think. They, they, they kind of look down on us a little bit. In fact, there was a, one of their publishers back, I think it was back in the 60s or 70s, said that in order for, a, I can't remember the exact quote, but it said, in order for an editorial cartoon to be effective, it has to be unfair, fundamentally unfair. Um, well, Can you explain that? What is he meaning by that? Well, I think they're, they're saying in, in order for, you have to misrepresent, misquote, uh, satire by its very nature is unfair. You exaggerate. You say something ridiculous in order to make a point. So I just thought that was an extremely snobby perspective and also wrong. I mean, one of the most famous satirical pieces in history is uh, Swift's Modest Proposal, which is a written piece, but it's in England. Uh, I think it was England or Ireland proposing um, that they eat babies, the, the rich should just eat babies. And some people took it seriously and literally and were, were outraged by it. But the, basically, they, you know, it was a satirical piece saying, you know, if you're going to take advantage of the, risk, the, the poor and exploit the poor, then why don't you just go ahead and eat their, eat their children? But that was a written piece, and it was fundamentally unfair if you take it literally. And so I, I think it's ridiculous to, uh, to, to take that perspective. And they have gradually used fewer and fewer. They used to have a Sunday roundup of what they thought were the best car- four best cartoons in the country, and they gradually phased that out. And, and then they, they now phased them out of their international edition. Um, they, they probably just consider us more trouble than we're worth, which is one reason we're just deciding to work together and, and stop relying on newspapers for our... For and there's never been sort of this solidarity amongst political editorial cartoonists prior, like the opportunity to sort of just own your own content and distribute it freely? Well, there there has been. It's just we didn't have the backing. Well, that's what's really different about this is, is uh, Vivek Garapali, who is our, our backer, um, Saw my column on CNN.com. He said, this is seems outra- you know, outrageous that political cartoonists are in this situation. And he thought it seemed like a great project. I remember my first meeting with him. He said, look, there's easier ways to make money, but this just seems like a really worthy project. And he doesn't want, want it to be something where it's you know draining him financially. So he wants it to be a, a profitable enterprise at some point. And I think it could be. It's succeeding beyond my wildest dreams at this point. As far you know, we're seven months old and we're growing at ten thousand subscribers a week. Um, it's a free publication, but you know we can we're going to sustain it with with advertising at some point. And so that's the main thing is to get to a point where we can pay cartoonists what they're worth and uh, engage readers, and for it to be self sustaining. And then we don't need newspapers as much as we used to. I think what'll happen is if we are successful, newspapers will go. Well, maybe we made a mistake getting rid of these people and they have, you know, a million subscribers or whatever we're going to have in a year and a half. Do you feel that outside of, say, comedians, right? I look at someone like Dave Chappelle and he's one of the few people with a major platform that's fearless to talk about mm-hmm. things that he doesn't care about anymore because he's just this rarefied air where he can talk about things where anyone else might get themselves in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I'm friends with a lot of comedians and I tell them, I think that you guys have a responsibility to our culture. That's more important than ever before because people already understand that it's absurd. So you can have the liberties to, to do crazy shit and talk about the world Mm -hmm. where someone from a more sort of traditional perspective could never do. And I was like, man, when our comedians have to sort of be our moral compass, this is fucking crazy. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah. And if you're a political cartoonist, and I've never, honestly, I've never read on a traditional basis conservative cartoons. Mm-hmm. I have just been like, nope, not going to even look at it. And I'm, the counterpoint, I have to. I'm looking at it, and it's acquired taste. Yeah. But I just have a hard time seeing how a conservative cartoonist could be right. 
because from their perspective, it is so myopic. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Well, so, I mean, I have my own biases that are similar to yours, and yet, so I'll, I will often look at these and say, you know, I, that's just wrongheaded. I mean, but philosophically, I also think they deserve to have their platform and to say what they, they think is right. And critical thinking can also be a process of, I'll engage your point of view, I'll think about it, I'll consider it, but I'm still going to reject it. At least, at least you've thought about it. So I'm a little reluctant to go, because I'm also kind of running counterpoint, I'm a little reluctant to go trashing <laughs> my colleague's point of view, even though I'm kind of wearing two hats. I'm a cartoonist, I have my own point of view, but I'm also making sure they have a platform. So politically, I, yeah, I... Right now, I have more trouble with the right than ever before. I mean, the, the climate change is a great example. There's not two even sides on climate change scientifically. There's 95% uh, certainty, and and the climate scientists, 95% of climate scientists think it's happening and man-made, and or at least contributed by man. And I think the science is is as solid as it's going to get. And I think we're seeing the results around us already. And yet, we have one side really still. They're starting to see a little bit of, of opening up um, among some Republicans, but by the time they're— But there is a right and wrong, right? I think on that issue, there is. But yeah. a lot of issues. You can certainly believe dinosaurs didn't exist, and you can mm-hmm. certainly believe the world is flat. Yeah. You can believe that you are right. right. Yeah. yeah. You have, can be full conviction in those mm-hmm. beliefs, mm-hmm. but you are patently wrong yeah. well, simultaneously. I, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Especially on religious issues like that, where the earth is not what 6,000 years old or whatever. It's just not. But I guess you're free to believe that. If someone can believe that. Certainly they can believe that climate change is wrong too, mm-hmm. but that's the problem is someone is so, they're zealots about this. Mm-hmm. They're not going to change their mind. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. And the consequences for being wrong are profound and awful. And yet, here we are. And that is, a, climate change is a really tough one for me for that very reason. I'm sorry, but it's just, there's a, there's a right and a wrong. And there's not a, it's not a 50-50 balance. It's just not. But when you say there is a right and wrong, and if we can't even see that, and we can't even see that dinosaurs did exist and the world is flat and mm-hmm. we can't agree on climate change, to me, from a, a someone that like watches the news and reads the New Yorker and all the liberal magazines and shit like that, when people can't agree about children in cages and mm-hmm. uh, school shootings and no legislation that prevents any of these horrible fucking things, and it becomes normalized, where do you go from there? Because it just seems to devolve to a place of not anarchy per se, but a world where people can believe whatever the fuck they want. And nothing's ever going to change. And this apathy, I think, is the, like, how do you prevent that from happening? Yeah. Yeah, people are having kind of outrage fatigue right now and uh, because there's a new outrage every week. Um, yeah, that's that's a little worrisome. But I think we're going to find out in the election next year. Um, I don't know where we go if Trump is reelected because I think he has really uh, done so much. He's doing damage to our political norms and social norms. And if he's reelected, I don't think we'll ever be the same as a country. Um, Does it really matter? I mean, yes, it matters if he's reelected, but let's just say he's not. The damage has all the shitty things have, that people thought weren't there are there. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I mean, how do you change that? And if you continue to do what you do and people that continue to sort of try to speak the truth, and that's the thing is I'm looking at you and you're trying to speak the truth, the truth that I can sort of, without knowing you fully, like I will agree with almost like 99% of the time, but a political cartoonist that's speaking from the right, if you were a far right political cartoonist, like I don't know if I could say the same thing. Is that bias on my opinion as well? Yeah, well, you you have opinion is bias and you have a certainly have a right to your bias. And I agree with you. And yet I also philosophically believe that they have a right to their point of view and the First Amendment protects speech that I don't agree with otherwise, that, that in fact, that is the very point of it. So that's why I feel like the best thing I can do is argue my point of view and hope to win. But that doesn't mean that I should, we should shut them up. They're just hopefully less persuasive, I hope. When you first started out and you told your dad, I want to become an, a cartoonist, would you have still done it? Like, did you have any idea this was at the end of the rainbow? 
Uh, I actually knew really young I wanted to do this. My father was a biochemist. He was a scientist. And when I told him I wanted to be a cartoonist, he laughed so hard. <laughs> it was absurd. So he you know, talked about the mathematical odds of becoming a cartoonist because he was a scientist. And I was like, well, I'm not good at math, so I'm going to ignore that. And he became my biggest fan in the end. Um, I don't know why. I was really interested in art, but I think partly because of him. He's a very analytical thinker. My mother was an artist. He was a scientist. And it was somehow that blend in my in my mind really played out into using art, but using it to communicate something. That And I was reading the paper one day and came across these editorial cartoons. I'm like, these are this is amazing. This is a beautiful drawing, and it communicates an idea, an opinion, in a very quick way. And uh, I think I was... Um, I think I was a freshman in high school, maybe eighth grade, uh, when I decided this is what I wanted to do and did it for my high school paper and did it for my college newspaper and landed a job right out of college and, you know, which was very difficult in those days, but when I was very driven. You were literally the physical manifestation of counterpoint then. <laughs> uh, analytic <laughs> father good and point. artist mother. It's like very good point. I hadn't thought <laughs> Apollo about that. and Dionysus. <laughs> uh, here we are. Counterpoint is that. Um, did you have any other doubts? You're like, I can't make a living doing this? Because has there ever been a political cartoonist that is just like filthy rich? Um, there's some that do pretty well. Um, in its heyday, political cartooning, especially like 70s, 80s, 90s, the editorial cartoonists were the rock stars of the newspapers. Um, my my wife is from the Philippines, and she's only been in the States, like, I think, 12 years. And I and I and she always laughs when I tell her that I used to be the rock star of the newspaper. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the good, yeah, whatever. Um, now it's just completely changed, and now we're like the, uh, we're the dogs of the newspaper industry. I mean, we still get lots of attention, but... Financially, it's completely changed. Um, in my highest earning years, I was doing pretty good. Um, not like I would have made the money I could have made maybe if I'd gone into you know, owning my own business or something like that. But I was very happy because I was financially doing pretty well and um, was living my dream, doing what I loved. And then this, it sort of felt like the earth just fell out from beneath me. The ground shifted the whole economics of the newspaper business. And I felt like I had reached the top of the mountain and then it disintegrated. Um, Were you like, I got to do something else at any point? Oh, yeah, yeah. I uh, The year and a half after I lost my job was the worst year and a half I've ever had. It was just brutal um, because when you send out a resume and all it has on it is editorial cartoonist and people are looking for previous experience in whatever field you're you're looking at, you just get thrown aside. It doesn't matter if you have a Pulitzer. I couldn't believe I, I spent sent out fifty resumes to, for communications jobs, um, anything I could think that was related, and I didn't get a single callback. It was just devastating. I was doing I was self employed, doing freelance work. I fell in fortunately with a small nonprofit, and I started doing a lot of communications work and grant writing for them. Turns out, after reading the newspaper for thirty years, you can write pretty well. So writing comes pretty naturally to me. Um, so I was just doing a lot of writing. And then gradually, I was still doing three cartoons a week for syndication, but syndication doesn't pay very well anymore. Um, so I almost, I came almost to the brink of retiring. I talked to my syndicate about retiring completely, and they understood. And I have a Patreon page as well. It was last June, um, and the Patreon page was helping I don't know if you know about that. It's reader support. People that support my work make contributions every every month. And I did one cartoon that went viral. It was about kids in cages. It was about the family separation thing. And my Patreon jumped 30% in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll give this a chance. And then a couple of weeks later, I wrote the column that Vivek saw. So I came right to the brink before pulling back and deciding I was going to give it some more time. And... Uh, Things have gotten better. And then I landed a job. <laughs> Actually, I'm a mortgage loan originator as well. I got certified to be a mortgage loan originator last fall because I was like, I got to find something else. I was like, well, I could write mortgages from home. I got a friend who's in the business who can, and I, got, I know some realtors. So I got certified. I was going to do cartoons and mortgages. Uh, strange blend, but I got certified pretty quickly because I needed something. I needed a break financially. So then once I got certified, just about then, I got a call from somebody who works at City Hall uh, and said, hey, look, I, I need a communications guy. I just lost somebody. We're going into session. 
and offered you know, me a job working for the mayor of Houston, which I really love. I am government, work for the government relations department. I mostly write. Um, I'm their communications guy. And so he hired me a week before Texas went into legislative session, which was six months of intensity. I got thrown right into the fire. Basically, what I was doing is writing policy briefings and then letters for or against legislation that the mayor would review and sign. So this job has really helped me a lot. It's been a great relief to have a full-time job, benefits, uh, medical. And so I'm working about 80 hours a week right now because I have a full-time job. And then I do three cartoons a week and manage CounterPoint in my free time. So my wife doesn't get to see me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we had uh, the R critic Jerry Saltz on our podcast. And he has a a book coming called 33 Rules on How to Be an Artist. And uh, he had a great uh, sort of went viral the article that went out on New York Magazine. And he really struck a nerve with me because when he said, he's like, you should never become an artist. You should do everything in your power not to do something you think you love to do. But if you can't imagine doing anything else, no matter how sad it makes you and how horrible it makes your life, that's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. Like, there's no other way. You can't do anything else. Yeah, my philosophy when I started was, I'm just going to try this, at least if I don't make it, I'll have no regrets, and at least I tried. And then I was really happy because it was going great. And then last year when I couldn't get a job, I was like, I made a terrible mistake. I'm 51 years old. All I have on my resume is editorial cartoonist. Nobody will even give me an interview. Um, I was like, I just felt trapped by this terrible decision to become an editorial cartoonist. Uh, so hopefully CounterPoint will change the equation a bit and, and, uh, turn things around and, and maybe it wasn't such a bad idea. So we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm starting to have hope again because there's so much interest. And that's what's so fun about this is we knew there was interest because it was so frustrating. I might have a cartoon get hundreds of thousands of shares on Facebook, but I'm broke. Or I'd see, you know, Barbara Streisand tweeted out one of my cartoons and didn't, tag me in it or anything and all her, you know, she's getting tons of retweets and it's like, that's so cool. And yet I'm totally broke. Can't pay my mortgage. (laughs) So that kind of stuff was happening all the time. Hollywood stars, whatever, you know, big political pages using our work, all, all cartoonists of experiences using our work. It gets tons of views, shares, and yet we're barely hanging on. So CounterPoint is an effort to at least grab some of that viral attention and hopefully get people to, to take a look at it and monetize it. And the, the, what we offer that other roundups, there's a lot of political cartoon roundups, but basically every one of them out there is using syndicated recycled material that's cheap, that has already been seen elsewhere and is not as timely. Our stuff is you can't see anywhere else until that newsletter comes out. Uh, so it's first run. And you have at least one book out, right? I have a book. Uh, it's called You Might Be From Texas If, uh, since I'm in a Houstonian. Uh, it's about you know 120 cartoons about being a Texan. And unfortunately, we published during the heat of the uh, Hillary and Trump campaign, and nobody was really paying attention to, to books at the time, and it was hard to get any kind of media attention. I think I sold three or 4,000 copies. It's still out there, but... We were hoping for, you know, in a state the size of Texas that it would do a lot better. Uh, but it didn't get a lot of media attention. It was terrible timing. But if you're from Texas, take a look at it. And the website for CounterPoint is? News.yourcounterpoint.com. It's, yeah, we don't show up in uh, web searches very easily right now because we're still relatively new. So it's important to find us that way, either on social media or, in, or you know, Facebook or Twitter. We're all over there. But news- what's, what's the uh, social media handle? So on Twitter, it's uh, at New Counterpoint, and on Facebook, it's Your Counterpoint. Um, we don't have the URL for just Counterpoint, but and Instagram is the same thing as Your Counterpoint. We don't have we have an Instagram set up, but it's not active yet. I can't remember what it is. It's easy to you just look up Counterpoint on Instagram, but we need to get Instagram going as as well. But um, if you just to sign up, just go to news.yourcounterpoint.com to get signed up for the newsletter. Anything else you want to add? Um, not really. I just, I was just kind of curious when you talked about criticism of, in, in your business, criticism can be devastating for a yeah. restaurant. Yeah. That really stood out to me because that's where our lives are very different. Criticism for us is empowering. We love criticism. 
criticism. When people, I, in fact, when I get reader criticism that I think is really mean, I'll post it to Facebook and my readers love it. We like amplify. We feel like we're doing our jobs well when people are angry at us. But for a restaurateur, it can be devastating, I guess. And it's in a different place, criticism yeah. right now. But the food critic job is in a, I think, in my opinion, in a transitional state. You you mentioned earlier in the podcast that for your editorial cartoonist on Counterpoint, by being so transparent and sort of fully available on their viewpoints, that it gives you the freedom to talk about or sketch out the, your ideas. And I don't know if I don't know if that's the same for a food critic. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's the point we have to have right now is maybe all forms of criticism, you have to be completely transparent about your viewpoints, mm-hmm. your status in life. Because mm-hmm. things are, like if you're going through hard times or your wife is sick or you're going mm-hmm. through a terrible divorce mm-hmm. or you just are generally in a bad mood, how does that not affect your ability yeah. to, to review something? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be human if that wasn't the case. Right. So I just feel like maybe... If you're working as transparently as possible because it's seen that ethical cartooning has made that like a necessity, maybe any type of commentary culturally, you have to just sort of transparently, this is where I am, this is where I believe in. But I don't know if we'll ever get to that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely helps, especially that the, the transparency I think is important. I hadn't thought about talking about where you are at a point in your life, you know, and I, I know you've talked about mental illness and your, um, as one of my favorite podcast years is very powerful. And I think that's really important. I'm also on the board of directors of mental health America in of greater Houston, uh, I'm a big advocate. And I congratulate you for being, you know, talking about that because the big thing is we got to de- destigmatize this. Um, I went through depression when I was laid off and couldn't get a job. It was inevitable. It was really devastating. Yeah. It probably did. It did affect my work. My work got worse. So I'm not having fun. I'm not doing a very good job. But I, you know, I don't know how transparent we can be about that when we've stigmatized it to to such a degree. Um, but I think it, it it does affect us all. Um, but uh, you know, I just wanted to congratulate you for talking about that. I think that's yeah, really really important. Uh, both of my kids have gone through it, um, and and uh, that's why I've become such an advocate. My my older son had a really severe case of depression. He's doing great now. He's, he's thriving, but it's because of intense intervention. It is uh, something that can only get better, I think, if people start talking about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. But we always talk about living in a transparent world, but people that are in these positions of authority aren't very transparent about their lives at all. Yeah, and there's a lot of posing and acting like we have it all together or they have it all together, and then people that you think seem to have it all together on the outside and seem to have manufactured an image that they do, often when you get close to them, they don't. And that's, it's a shame that we've stigmatized it to such a degree that people feel like they have to act like they have it all together. Um, I mean, we're all human. And it's like you said, it's, we're not going to get a handle on mental health issues unless we start talking about it more. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to seeing Counterpoint grow and challenge my assumptions. And, and uh, congrats on everything and Thank wish you. you the best of luck. Thanks Thank for joining you. us today. It's been a real pleasure, Dave. Thanks. Cool. Well, that was my conversation with Nick Anderson. Check out Counterpoint. I think a lot of what we're talking about makes a little bit more sense when you can see his art. And there's a good chance... If you read newspapers or you follow politics, you've seen it before, but we're just putting a name and hopefully identity behind some of the, the best political cartoons out there. So thank you again, Nick, for coming on. Um, Want to get to some Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com questions. And for the next sort of week or two, we're just going to answer questions from the iTunes podcast page. Isaac Lee, can you read off some of the questions? This is from Greg M. 2019, Greg Martinez. Hi, Dave. As a young cook, I've been struggling with how to filter through good and bad information in the culinary world. On your last podcast, UNWD talked about WD's obsession with cookbooks and how much easier it is to find different techniques now than it was before. On the other hand, WD spoke to how the industry was in a way much simpler I feel that the open access to information today makes it much more difficult and complicated to find quality information. Are there sources you find more credible and where would you start? 
Thanks for that, Greg. Um, well, I got a lot of comments about that Wiley podcast. So number one, shout out to Wiley Dufresne as always. And I'm overjoyed to know that he uh, inspires the current culinary generation. Um, and I'm excited to see what he has next, should he choose, other than do's donuts. Um, but one of the things I love most about Wiley was I never thought I'd be friends with one of my heroes and arguably the greatest, most talented chef America has produced. But the difference was when I started cooking and a lot of my peer group that started around the same time is we didn't have any information. You know, the French Laundry Cookbook was probably the first book that unlocked what it might be like in a professional kitchen, not just any professional kitchen. Thomas Keller's French Laundry was the first of its kind and arguably one of the most significant restaurants in the world. And getting to see the different kinds of knife cuts, the importance of family, the stories, and just the precision I didn't have the means to go to Napa and eat at the French Laundry. So one of the most important things was imagination. And I'm leery to validate sources that one should be better than the other or should follow this person on YouTube. I think you need to figure it out yourself. And that's sort of the problem we're in today is that everyone's looking for validation on the sources that you're trying to learn from. What's credible, what's not. And if you need to be constantly spoon-fed about what's good, you're never going to know what's good. It's got to be somewhat intuitive. And you got to learn to develop your own opinion, particularly if you want to have your own voice. And it's a repeating theme that I've said, whether it's Jessica Koslow, Wiley Dufresne, or Brooks Headley, like, don't copy them. They're, they're recipes, per se. Copy how they think and how they've gone through their lives on a, on a professional level. Because you need to be open to ideas from everywhere. And I can be just as much as inspired from McDonald's, even though I, I don't eat their food or want to eat their food sometimes. Sometimes you, you have no choice, as I can from a meal at Noma. And that's really been the case because I'm never going to believe in something so strongly that my opinion can't change. And I know it's hard when we're on this podcast and we're talking about dishes and chefs that you may not have heard from. And I remember feeling that kind of frustration as well because it's so insular and the vocabulary can be so clubby almost that it's really not. It's like, you're never going to get it downloaded. You're never going to figure this out in one source. So this is not an answer that you want, Greg, and I could certainly tell you where to look, but the best answer, in my opinion, is to look everywhere, and you need to determine what's good and what's bad. And one of the best ways to determine what's good or what's bad is just to read it, to eat it, and to cook it. And that's the best way for learning what's, what's good and what's not. And that's how it would start is, you know what I mean? Like, it could be anything. You just have to make sure that it's a moving target and you never get settled. But it's all good. So you just got to figure it out. Anyway, I'll shut up. And it's not because I don't want to answer the question. Anyway, go ahead, Isaac. All right, let's do another one. This is from Archery Stud. Hey, Dave, I'm from a small college town in the South and I started cooking professionally as a career switch at 27. After two and a half years working for the best chef in town, I knew I had to move to a bigger city in order to pursue this and get better. Now I'm in Portland, which you know is a great food city. I have put in nine months of the 12 months that my chef requires before one can, quote, leave on good terms. It has been a very tumultuous nine months with incredible turnover. We lost one sou and our CDC is leaving at the same time my year is up. I'm only into the industry four years and I feel my knowledge gaps won't be filled by being made a sou in, in a place scrambling to find the CDC. I fear I will spend my days keeping the restaurant afloat and lose my passion. I found your perspective on allowing your chefs to find their own way to be encouraging yet complex. I wonder how you would respond to a cook in my position if they brought these feelings to light. Thank you, Dave, for all you do. Archery stud. Uh, thanks for that question. Um, I mean, the question is pretty self-explanatory. For those that aren't in the industry, I'm sure you could relate to this in your own workplace. Basically, you join a team that you love, but then everyone leaves. And you don't want to be the last person standing or the last person without a chair when the music stops. And there's this constant FOMO. I continually see that. It happens. It's a natural progression. It's a transient business. And one of the things you need to understand regardless is that everything has a cycle, like a birth and death cycle, whether it's a dish, whether it's a, a menu, whether it's the seasons, obviously. But the thing that is constantly in flux are the people that you work with. 
And I think about this a lot because it still happens and you want to make sure that people are prepared. And uh, I've had this conversation recently because you can get bored. You don't even need the fact that people leave. You could feel the same way of missing out if you are staying somewhere and you're not progressing as much as you'd like. And there's no right answer to this, but I will tell you this, in my opinion, what I encourage someone to do is this, you're never going to be able to run away from your problems. And if you're working at a restaurant that you like to begin with, more often than not, like, there's a reason you like that. You might like the philosophy, you might like the menu, the ingredients you work with, the style, whatever. But everyone reaches a point where they think that they're not going to get to the next level because they're envious of working at another restaurant or they want to be working with another chef. There's going to be a moment where you got to be careful of learning too much because you're not going to learn how to think for yourself. And, and everyone's at a different point on that. And not everyone wants to take the leap of faith and be their own chef. You, there's a variety of ways you can find your own voice. But what I'm trying to get back to is when you're in that moment of like, man, it's FOMO essentially, like fear of missing out that I could be learning more somewhere else. The biggest problem is no one's going to spoon feed you anymore. And what you're going to have to learn is whether you work somewhere else or not, you're going to be in the same position. Hey, wait a second. Like my structure and my support system's no longer here. I don't want to be here. And you could see this in a variety of ways. And I wish Archery Stud would give me his real name or her name so I don't have to say the fucking name Archery Stud. But you are going to have to figure out how to educate yourself at some point and learn how to create and, and use this vacuum as an opportunity to create your own voice. And I would look at this as an opportunity to learn how to be a better leader on someone else's dime. If you want to be the head of your own kitchen one day, this is a wonderful opportunity to make mistakes and understand that it's never going to get easier, particularly when you are the number one in a kitchen. So Archery Stud, please think about the opportunities that you do have. And it's sometimes the grass is not greener on the other side. And Maybe with this power vacuum, you could assume more responsibility and learn things that you could never have learned anywhere else. And every time there's a problem, you need to see if it's an opportunity for yourself. And that's something I had to teach myself when I started Momofuku. All I wanted to do was work at Maso or Per Se. And I realized that I could complain all I want about not having what I wanted, which was more structure and more wisdom around me that at some point I had to come to the realization that I had to teach myself and I had to be accountable for the education moving forward. And that's when I really started to double down on my efforts and using it as an opportunity to test things out. So I can understand both things, man, but it's hard when you're not being spoon-fed and the structure that you're so comfortable with is no longer there. Uh, Again, tough question. Hopefully I answered it and good luck. Well, thank you for listening to this episode. As always, guys, keep on sending these questions in to Ask Dave or on our iTunes page. Appreciate it. Thank you again. Stay tuned next week. Take it easy, everyone. Bye.